All right, well, good morning again. Uh, we are continuing in our study in Matthew. We've now reached Matthew 24, and we'll be looking at verses 32 through 44. So Matthew 24, verses 32 through 44. It says in verse 32, Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branches, or when its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also... When you see all these things, know that it is near at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and the other left. Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. As a refresher, for those who haven't been following uh, or haven't been uh, listening to every single message um, up until this point, and just for those who have been here, as, as a reminder, we have been going through Matthew. Now we're in chapter 24. And the chapter has been dealing with the events that will take place in the end times. Uh, I have a slide just of looking at kind of the next things on the calendar of God's schedule for the end times. As you remember, we mentioned a couple times that the next event on God's timeline, we are now in the church age, the next event is the rapture. This event is described in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 17, where it says the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds and meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. And so the rapture, the church, both those who have died and those who are still living during the church age will meet the Lord in the air and it will forever be with him. Immediately after the rapture, we have this seven-year period called the Tribulation. Tribulation, as you remember, is broken up into two parts. The Great Tribulation being the last three and a half years, and the first, half three, first three and a half years being the tribula uh, just called the Tribulation. Each section of that uh, seven-year period is three and a half years. Most of Matthew 24 has been dedicated to talking about what is going to happen during that seven-year period. It tells us that in the first half, that first three and a half years, how nation will rise against nation. There will be earthquakes, pestilences. There will be many false messiahs. One-fourth of the world's population will be killed. And that's just the first half. The second half intensifies with the seawaters, the freshwaters turning into blood, all the marine and sea life dying off. A third of the trees and grass burned. A third of the sun, moon, and stars cease to shine. There will be a violent earthquake so great that mountains and uh, islands will disappear. And those are just a couple 
of the events that I could list of what will happen uh, during that final three and a half years. It will be a, a time where horrific events will happen on this earth, but it also will be a time where God will righteously be judging the earth for their sin and for their willful decision to reject his son, Jesus Christ. Following that seven-year tribulation period, we, uh, the Bible says that uh, Christ will return to this earth with his saints, where he will physically then reign over the earth for a thousand-year period known as the millennium. And so that kind of brings you a picture of what is on that time uh, of, of events to come. Noah just talked two weeks ago about the second coming of Christ. And so we have all these this, uh, events coming uh, in the future, and with these in mind, with the realization that the second coming of Christ is coming very soon, we today pick up in our passage um, on a similar idea of that, of what will happen. Uh, and Jesus begins this, pa- this passage with a parable. For those who are unfamiliar with a parable, a parable is just simply an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. It's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And Jesus would often use common things that the people of his day would relate to, something like a fig tree. And they would then, using something they already knew, he would lay alongside of it some spiritual truths. And because the earthly story could be understood, you could then understand the point that he was teaching in a spiritual sense. And so here Jesus teaches a simple parable on a fig tree. He says in verse 32, Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. Now, nature has a way of uh, having particular patterns. Leaves tend to appear before the summer comes or before the summer harvest comes. And this is all to say that when you see leaves on a tree, especially a fig tree, you know that it's a sign that the summer is coming and specifically that the summer fruits will be coming shortly after that. And it's interesting that Only a few chapters earlier, we also are introduced to a fig tree. This fig tree uh, was seen uh, as Jesus was walking along with his disciples. And this fig tree had all leaves and it bore no fruit. And Jesus cursed it and it withered away. Well, that fig tree that he cursed, it wasn't just a fig tree that he didn't like and he just decided to curse it. It was figuratively representing the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel at the time, they were all leaves. They were no fruit to be shown from them. They would outwardly claim to be righteous, outwardly claim to know God. And yet when he stood in their midst and proclaimed to be God, when he demonstrated miracles to prove that he was God, they blatantly ignored it. They rejected him as their Messiah. And their lives, though they outwardly cleaned them up and polished them, they were inwardly corrupt. There was no real fruit in their lives, showing that they had truly come to a knowledge, a saving knowledge of Christ. But this passage, this parable here, actually, I should say, indicates that there is going to be a time when the nation of Israel as a whole will no longer be spiritually barren. They will once again bear fruit. It says in verse 33, you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near at the doors. And so basically what he's saying is when you see Israel returning to the Lord, accepting him, know that the end is very near and that the second coming of the Lord is imminent. Now, some had thought back in 1948 when Israel um, became a nation again, that that was a sign. That was the sign that they are now 
um, bearing fruit, and Jesus should be coming back any time now. Um, unfortunately, that has been over 70 years from this point, um, and there is no sign, I would say, on a national level to indicate that there is a true spiritual revival to the degree that it describes here. Um, so for that, for that reason, I don't believe it's talking about so much on a national level coming together as a nation again. But what I think it refers to is that there will be a time when this now nation of Israel will show true signs of spiritual life, where they will finally acknowledge Jesus as Lord, and they will even go throughout the world proclaiming and preaching that good news. Think about in the tribulation period, it was described that there will be 144,000 Jewish people um, basically going out as witnesses before God during the tribulation period. They will go about proclaiming the gospel, and this is something that has never been seen really up until this point. Zechariah 12.10 describes this, uh, this shift, this change, when it tells of a time where the nation of Israel will finally realize God's grace and kindness to them. He says that the nation of Israel will look upon me, whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son, and they will grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. They will finally acknowledge their sins. They'll finally acknowledge what they have done in murdering and crucifying their Messiah, and they will return to the Lord. And you're going to see a spiritual revival of the nation of Israel during the tribulation period. And when you see that, you'll know that the return of Christ is coming very soon. He says in verse 34, Surely I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. And some have wondered what Jesus was referencing when he said this generation, uh, that they won't pass away. But um, it's clear that it wouldn't be talking about the people that Jesus was physically speaking to in that moment. Those people in Jesus' day have long gone uh, from this earth. Um, and these events still have not taken place yet. But what Jesus is more likely just simply saying is that the generation of people who are alive during the tribulation period and they see this revival of the nation of Israel on a spiritual level will be the same generation that will see Jesus' coming again in the clouds. It's going to be that quickly that there will be the shift of uh, the nation of Israel realizing their sin, turning to God, and shortly after his second coming will, will come about. Verse 35 says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. This verse is um, probably one of the greatest guarantees you'll ever see concerning the words of Jesus. What Jesus is saying is that these things to come of the rapture, of the tribulation, of my second coming, of this revival of the nation of Israel, this will all come to pass. He tells us, though, that heaven and earth, the most constant things that we can think about, you know, the earth, the earth we're on right now, the skies above us, those one day will no longer be there. Second uh, Peter uh, 3.10 adds uh, with this, saying, the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. I mean, think about that. The skies that we see above us, the earth we live on, these are things that we depend upon every day. We depend upon the laws of gravity. We depend on the sun shining down to give us warmth. We depend upon the sky to produce rain like it's doing right now. We depend upon the earth to give us housing. We depend upon its nutrients for the soil so we can grow our crops. All that is needed to sustain physical life is on this planet. 
How could something so constant ever be destroyed? And yet, this would not be the first time that God has destroyed the earth. If we remember, and we'll touch on this more, but just think back to the days of Noah. There was a flood. God destroyed the world with a flood. And he will again destroy it with fire this time in the end times. And so what Jesus is essentially saying here is that the world and the skies above you, the things that you think are so constant in life, will be destroyed. It's going to pass away one day. But you know what won't pass away? You know what stands through the test of time, what remains through all eternity? What will never pass away? It's my words. The promises I have made to you, the truth that I have spoken to you, that never will fail. You know, you you can't be trusting in humans or on this earth because if you trust on those things, you know, one day they will be done away with. But your trust should be in the one whose word never passes away, on the God whose words stand through eternity. All the things we talked about will come to pass, and it's going to come to pass because it's God who spoke it. All his words never fail. And that, to you, should be an encouragement today, to know that every single thing that he has promised in the Bible remains true today, just as it was the day he promised it. God does not change his mind, and what he says will remain faithful to it. His promises will remain true. As I think about that, I just, I'm in awe. I think, wow, what a great God we serve. A reliable, faithful God whose words never fail. If you remember at the beginning of the chapter, Jesus tells his disciples all of these things because they initially asked him three questions. The three questions are found in verse 3, where they ask him, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And so Jesus spent the bulk of the last verses from verse 4 to 35 answering those last two questions of what will the sign of your coming be and of the end of the age. And now Jesus will shift his attention to answering that first question of when will these things be? So when will Jesus return and take his place on this earth? We get that answer in verse 36. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angel of heaven, but only my father. It's pretty clear that no one knows the day or the hour, and men have tried over the years to predict and make uh, guesses of when this will happen. One of the most notable people of recent times was a man by the name of Harold Camping. Um, He had made many um, false predictions in the past, in the 80s, um, but he went um, wholeheartedly into this last prediction he made back in 2011. He spent somewhere around an estimated $5 million on a campaign telling the world that Jesus was going to rapture his saints on a specific date, May 21st, 2011, and that October 21st, 2011, the earth as we know it would cease to exist. Now, marking almost 10 years uh, this week from his final prediction, uh, we know that that didn't happen. And he could have looked no farther than just this verse to find out that no one really knows the date. And so it's futile to set dates. It's futile to guesstimate when this is going to happen. Even while Jesus was on this earth, when he was veiled, uh, veiling his full glory as a man on this earth, His father was the only one who knew the day and the hour of his second coming. It says that not even the angels knew the day or the hour. That being said, one might say, well, Jesus did give us some clues of the time and and the events that happen. Shouldn't we be able to know the day or the time? Shouldn't we be able to somehow uh, figure out a time? 
And again, it is unwise to set dates. But if you are familiar with prophecy, the Bible gives us clues to the general time that he's going to come again. If you think about the timeline that we used earlier, uh, it comes from the book of Revelation and Daniel, where the Bible says that it will be three and a half prophetic years, or 1260 days, from the time the Antichrist sets up his image of himself in the temple and declares that he is God until the time that Christ will return to this earth. And so with that timeline in mind, we have a rough idea of when he'll come back. Now, that three and a half years, though, um, between the setting up of himself in the, in the uh, temple and Jesus' return, we don't know if he's going to come that day, the next day. We don't know the exact hour. We don't know the day on that. And to make it even more difficult to fully understand, when we look at those same prophecies concerning those 1260 days or those three and a half years, Daniel talks about a period of testing and tribulation for 1290 days. So there's an additional 30 days that we don't really know what's happening. And then he later talks about, he says, blessed is those who wait and come to that 1335th day. And so there's an additional 75 days on top of this 1260 days that are kind of unaccounted for. And some have speculated that this is a transitionary time between his coming and the setting up of his millennial kingdom. The thing is, we don't truly know. And so even if you were to know all the prophecy, even if you were at the tribulation period and you were ready to go with all this Bible knowledge, you still would not know the day or the hour that he's coming. And so with that, though we don't know the day, the hour, the year of Christ's return, we wait expectantly for it. Let me just ask you a question this morning. Are you ready for the return of Christ? Would his return catch you by surprise? Or are you prepared and looking forward to that day? I don't know about you, but um, growing up, we tend to like to play games in the house, um, or even outside too, sometimes. But one of the ones that seemed to be a favorite in our household was hide and seek. And I know many of you are probably very familiar with this game, but for those who aren't, or who those who need a refresher, the seeker counts and the others hide. It's a very profound, very uh, detailed game. But uh, as the person who was hiding, there would be this anticipation for the seeker, as they count down from 100 or whatever number, uh, you know, anticipation for them, you know, will they find me? Will they catch me in my hiding spot? And as the seeker counts down, sometimes there was people who couldn't find a spot right away or they, you know, all the good spots were taken. And so they're, they're scrambling along and they're taking too long. And eventually uh, you hear those fateful words at the end, ready or not, here I come. And, um, you know, for those who are hidden well, it was great because, okay, I, I got a solid place. But for those people who are, as they hear the words, ready or not, here I come, still scrambling to find a place, it was trouble because you knew that you're probably going to get found out pretty quickly. And that, that game struck, uh, that final phrase of ready or not, here I come, struck a chord in my mind because as we look at these next few verses, that's essentially what Jesus is saying. Ready or not, here I come. I've given you my signs. I've indicated my soon coming. I've told you that this is going to happen. Ready or not, here I come. And so with this soon return of Christ being at hand, with the signs being given to indicate his return, what will the world be up to? Verse 37 through 39 tells us, But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of Son of Man be. 
For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Now we mentioned Noah earlier, but as you remember, in the days of Noah, the Bible tells us that the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. That is the picture of what mankind is going through at that time, uh, of Noah's day. And this is what sin going unchecked looks like. If everyone just follows their own moral compass, if everyone just disregards the laws of God, you will have a world running rampant in sin, as evidenced by the days of Noah. There was, in the days of Noah, there was no thought of God. There was no thought of the consequences of their actions. They were eating, drinking, marrying, and giving in marriage, which in and of itself is not a problem. You know, those are very typical things to do. But it's to say that they were going on life as usual. Everything was just going to happen the way it always happened. There was going to be nothing different. When they heard Noah speaking of a warning, telling him of, of an impending flood, you know, they scoffed it off. They laughed at him, thinking, how is it possible that we have gone on this earth our entire lives? We've never seen rain happen before. It's never happened. How would rain fall from the sky to such a degree that it would wipe off the entire earth, that we would flood over every mountain here? There's, there's no way that's going to happen. And to their, to their point, Noah had then also gone on 120 years saying the same message, and nothing had happened since the day he said that first warning. And so here they are, marrying, eating, drinking, giving in marriage, thinking that life is going to be as usual. And it wasn't until the point where the rain finally came down, the flood came, and they were probably neck deep in the water when they realized the foolishness of their decision. Their decision to not accept the safety that God had offered them. But at that point, it was too late. At that point, they were swept away in the flood into judgment, and only those in the ark were delivered and saved from that judgment. And Jesus says here, in the end times, the world is going to be just as evil as it was in the days of Noah. People are going to think that everything is going to go on business as usual. And they are going to harden their hearts to the truth. That is, until Jesus comes back and they're going to be caught off guard. They're going to be caught by surprise. And like in the days of Noah, only those who are in Christ, who have trusted in his salvation, those are the only ones who will be delivered from his coming judgment. The rest of the world will be swept away into judgment and to further illustrate this idea, Jesus then gives us two more examples of what this will look like. He says in verse 40, Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken, the other left. Two women will be out the grinding mill, one will be taken, and the other left. Now this verse has been, probably you've used it or heard it, most commonly used to depict what is going to happen during the rapture. Um, unfortunately, out of, that's kind of out of context, although there is some application to it. Um, the real context of that uh, verse is referring to the second coming of Christ, where Jesus is going to be coming, and there's going to be two groups of people. One group of people will be swept away into judgment for the refusal to bow the knee to Christ, and the other group will remain on this earth, and they will enjoy the reign of Christ in the millennium. And so, really, in a sense, this is written, this specific verse, is written for those who will be living at the time of the tribulation period. It's God's warning to them. What group of people are you going to be in? Will you be swept away into judgment? 
Or will you trust the Lord and enjoy him reigning on this earth for a thousand years? The next few verses detail what the people of those days' response should be, as well as our response as a church age as we wait for the Lord's return. He says in verse 42, Watch therefore, for you do not, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. So as believers, and for anyone who's living during that time period of the tribulation, you're to watch with eager anticipation, knowing that every single day that passes, you are one day closer to his second coming. Believers are to be on guard for his soon return. He, gives the, he likens it to the example of a robber breaking into a house in the middle of the night. You know, if I'm a homeowner um, and I, I don't expect something, it's going to catch me off guard. Someone will break in and steal things. But if I'm prepared, if I know in advance someone's coming, I'm going to have guards there. I'm going to change the locks. I'm going to hire cameras to be put in. I'll have everything prepared so that I know and I'm ready for a robber to come and so that they won't break in and so they won't steal what I have there. The point being... <clears throat> That if you know something is happening, if you know Jesus is coming, though you may not know the day or the hour, you would be prepared. <clears throat> and so, in light of his soon coming, because we don't know the day or the hour, we should be prepared. His day when he returns should not catch us by surprise. And possibly one of the reasons that God doesn't give us the day or the hour is so that people don't put off salvation until the last minute, but rather they'll come to him while he can still be found. And so the first thing that we're supposed to do is to, is to watch. And he says in verse 44, the next thing to do is, therefore you also be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. That final command for those in the tribulation period could also have an application to us today. And that is to be ready for the Son of Man's coming. I asked you earlier, but are you ready to meet Jesus? If he were to come today, would he find you living for the sins of this world in drunkenness, in sexual immorality, living as if the world would just go on business as usual? Or will he find you with your, with your faith placed in him, living for him and ready for his soon return? 2 Peter 3, 11 through 12 tell us, Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of person ought you be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. We should be living in such a manner that we should not be ashamed of his soon return. He should find us prepared and ready for him. And so if there are sins in your life that you're holding on to, cut them off. If, you are, if your behavior or speech is ungodly, repent of it, turn away from that, and prepare yourself for his coming. To just put it simply, you should be living lives that are holy and that exemplify godly behavior. We should be living lives that are holy and exemplify godly behavior. And now if you don't know the Lord, if you don't have a personal relationship with him, the end described for you in this passage is that you will be the group of people that will be swept away into judgment, just like the days of Noah. And there's really no kind way to put it. The end intended for you, the end that will be for you, is hell, where you will stand and wait to stand before a righteous God who will judge you for your sins. 
And the end result of that is to be cast into the lake of fire for all eternity, where there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. That is the sad, tragic end for those who do not know Christ. But that doesn't have to be the case for you, because God's offer of salvation still stands today. God has made a way of salvation for you by sending his son, Jesus Christ, to die on that cross for you. He paid your penalty. He died in your place. And the Bible says that if you believe upon him for salvation, whoever believes upon him shall not perish but have eternal life. That offer of salvation is still valid today just as it was when he first said it back in John 3.16. In the final chapter of the Bible, Revelation 22, God repeatedly reminds the world again that he is coming soon. And he once again, as one of his final words that he says before he closes off the book, of his letter to us. He offers an invitation of salvation three times to anyone who is willing to come. He says in Revelation 12, 22, 17, come and let the one who hears say come and let the one who is thirsty come and let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. And so with these repeated invitations to come, God is wrapping up what he's doing on earth and he's essentially saying, don't waste any more time, hurry up, come on. Come to me. The offer is still on the table. And to just help illustrate this idea of coming now to Christ and not ignoring his invitation of um, salvation, I was reminded of a story that Rick Bellis told um, nearly two decades ago and has always stuck with me since that point. Um, Rick, at the time, was living in, um, in Vallejo, and he would spend time with his grandparents. Uh, at the time, he was only about six years old. And so one weekend when he was with his, with his grandparents, um, they decided to visit friends in Sacramento. And so as they take him off to Sacramento, it's maybe an hour drive or so, and these are friends they hadn't seen in a while, and so they get around the living room, they have you know, adult catch-ups, and they're talking. And as a six-year-old, he's bored out of his mind, and he's just waiting for the time where he can do something else and go play with the kids. And so eventually his grandpa catches on that he seems a little bit bored. And so he says, well, Rick, how about you go outside and go play with one of the neighbor kids? And so he's ec ecstatic to leave the house. And he goes outside and crosses the street to one of the neighbor boys' uh, yards. And he's having a great time. He's playing with toys. He's enjoying his uh, encounter with this kid that he just met. He's having a, a wonderful time there. And uh, a couple hours go by. And eventually his grandparents leave the house. And his grandpa says, Across the street, Rick, come on, let's go, we're leaving. And uh, he does what I've done, and I'm sure you've probably done at some points as a kid, is that you, you pretend you didn't hear what you just heard. And uh, so he, you know, he heard it, but he looked down and he kept playing because, you know, he had a good time with this, this, this friend of his. How is he going to leave that, you know, for uh, going back home where it won't be as much fun? And so his, uh, his grandpa says again, all right, Rick, come on, we're, we're leaving, let's go now. And at this point in time, there was just this match between them of who was going to cave first. And Rick wanted to be there, and his grandpa also wanted to leave. Um, and so he continued on, pretending like he did not just hear the calling of his grandpa. And finally, his grandpa, bless his heart, he said it a third time, Rick, if you don't come, we're leaving. And he thought to himself, he would never do that. He would never leave me. And he continued playing with his friend. 
And the next sound he heard was the car engine starting up, and as he looked up, there his grandpa was driving down the street. And Rick threw down his toys, and he starts running down that street, crying and screaming, wait, grandpa, wait. And as he's running down that street, tears are flooding his eyes as he runs down to the point where he can no longer see his grandpa because he turns the corner and he's gone. He's out of sight. And here a six-year-old kid is in Vallejo, or from Vallejo, in Sacramento now, having no idea how to get back. And his heart just sank as he realized the situation. That was it. He had heard the calling, and his grandpa was gone. In the same way today, Jesus is saying to you, come. It's time to come home. If you don't know him, he is calling you today. And I don't know how many times in your life you've heard the gospel message, and you've heard him calling you, and you've pretended as if you didn't hear his voice. But there will be a day where he will figuratively start up the car and drive off. And at that point, it will be too late for you. In the Gospels, he says some chilling words to the religious leaders. He says to them, And where I go, you cannot come. You will seek me, but you will not find me. You do not want to wait until that time in your life when it is too late. If you're hearing him calling you today, come to him and accept his salvation that he offers you. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, we just thank you for uh, your word. We thank you for uh, just your soon coming. And Lord, we look forward to that day. I pray that, Lord, we live lives ready and prepared for your coming. Lord, we see what's happening in the world. And Lord, we know it's coming soon. And so we look expectantly towards that day. And we pray that, Lord, our lives would be lived out wholly for you and that we would live lives that would glorify you and, and be conducted with godly behaviors. Lord, just... We just say, Lord, just come quickly, Lord. And, and if anyone doesn't know you, Lord, and they're putting it off, uh, trusting you, I pray that, Lord, they would come to you today and get that free offer of salvation that you offer, that they would come uh, and enjoy that eternal life. We just pray all these things in your name. Amen.